All right, you there? I am here. You want to kick us off? You know, as our tradition is every 10 episodes, we take a little break and then we kind of revisit and figure it out uh, where has this podcast been and where is it going? And the original like conceit of the show was sort of like that we were both really interested in doing creative stuff, yes. maybe uh, doing like worky work stuff, that getting a career in tech, something like that, maybe building a business, maybe something else. We were, neither of us had reached the point where we had like kind of gone full bore into a project and really committed, uh, and we're actually doing something. And that was kind of the name of the show was Fits and Starts. We were doing all these different things. We were kind of having these different ideas and kicking them around in an idea phase. And we were sort of frustrated by that. We were trying to figure out why we weren't doing our work, why it wasn't getting completed the way we wanted to. And then we got into this crazy discussion about what is work and why is it even worth doing. And the thing that I realized the other day was that we sort of like accomplished the purposes of the show at least the original purposes which was like we were trying to get going uh and now i feel like we've really uh both gotten going uh and now both of us are actually really like life is thick as friend of the show jake thompson says life is thick right now it's like not like uh i wouldn't say it's busy i don't feel like i'm frantically running around chasing my tail but every hour is like pretty thick right now uh your uh, your time constraint. The time constraint in a really good way. Like I'm working on stuff I want to be working on, but like a bunch of cool stuff is happening at work. And we in the last six months made like a ton of progress on music and also on the board game. And we've like just been doing a ton of really fun stuff outside of work. And I moved to Oakland, and you're getting married, and it's just this whole and like it's just it's it's it, it, there's a lot of really great stuff. Point is, the show kind of in its original form. I don't know that that's a show that still needs to exist. Uh, I don't know, but what do you think about it? I think that. Yeah. It's like, we kind of worked ourselves out of a job. Uh, yes. And yes. And (laughs) and yes. And now we're like, well, we still have thoughts about work and technology and whatever else, but I still like having a podcast and we still like having a podcast and we want to be able to get on here and talk about, you know, uh, where I can complain about uh, Notion and you can tell me about uh, labor unions. But, like, the original conceit of the show is just not really what it was. So this is uh, the fourth sprint. Here we are. And neither of us has as much time as we did when we started. Uh, we're kind of talking about slightly different topics. And also, now we're kind of in a place where it's unlikely that we'll be releasing on a regular two-week schedule. Uh and now we're just sort of talking about the stuff we want to talk about. And I feel really good about that. Yep. Uh, how do you feel about that? That's exactly how I feel about it. Okay. To wit, so, really good. The other thing that was that I was sort of struck by was, I think this is also a good way to sort of keep up uh, with just stuff we're working on too. Because uh-huh. uh, hopefully uh, we're going to get to a point where we're like shipping stuff, you know? Uh, yep. I've got music that's almost finished and I'm going to be shipping it and I want to talk to you about it. Uh, the games are really coming along i mm-hmm. feel uh have some trepidation about saying this but i think we're actually gonna like finish a game and release it and try to sell it that's so very very cool and we're f- i want to talk to you about that because i want i want to hear your thoughts about that uh and uh so anyway there's kind of different levels of interest here Le- uh, let's say interest level zero the, uh, the the first item in that array is uh you're not interested at all in this show in which case what are you doing life yeah, is goodbye so why are you goodbye. listening what do you get out of here leave turn this off leave uh, us don't be here the second the second tier you know it's like you, you like the show the best thing you can do there is you know just keep listening uh and th- the next level would be kind of like you really like the show well if you're you know you're looking to help i guess you could just tell your friends about it or write a review and then there's this this special category for people uh people who, who have a sort of maybe a an unhealthy relationship with the show where they really like the show so much that they actually want to share in the cost of uh, creating the show and releasing it and those people uh we can redirect to our patreon uh you know who you are been playing with uh i'm gonna i'm about to be real mean to base camp so forgive me rut row notion is base camp for people who don't want to kill themselves um (laughs) base camp is a terrible terrible piece of software that no one should ever have to use yeah um notion is like base camp but it's uh it's good 
uh, the main reason Basecamp isn't good is because uh, so there's this really, really smart and excellent guy who works at Basecamp. His name is uh, David Hanemeyer Hansen, DHH, as they call him. Uh, he mm-hmm. created Ruby on Rails. He's, he, pardon me for, for outsider perspective. He's not a guy. He's kind of the guy, right? Uh, he's one of the two guys. Okay. Um, Jason Freed would be the other guy. He's is he the, um, is DHH is the is the Rails guy though, right? DHH is the Rails guy. Okay. Um. So anyway, DHH, uh, creator of Rails, very smart, uh, person, very uh, opinionated, smart. I agree with almost everything DHH has said about software. Like he's very rarely wrong. One thing he's wrong on, uh, he thinks that uh, you should basically like write as little JavaScript as possible. Hmm. Um, and so his whole like Basecamp, they invented this whole new JavaScript framework, which was basically based around the idea that it's like let's write less JavaScript, let's not write a lot of JavaScript. It's hard to maintain, it's annoying to have, whatever. What that leads to is the super slow, clunky interface that is Basecamp. Hmm. That leads me to click a million times to do anything. So it's partly a design problem and partly a lack of JavaScript. Hmm. Notion, on the other hand, is basically like Basecamp, but they embrace the concept of JavaScript and they embrace the concept of adding features, which is also something <laughs> Basecamp is not into. They, yeah, let's let's say that they made they 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 embrace. They, let's say they embrace the idea of adding new features. I'm not sure that they have embraced that really as a kind of a habit yet. They haven't really internalized it. I well, wouldn't say. yeah, and I don't think they have the revenue to do it. Yet, no, they right. Don't. That's the thing. But Basecamp does. Basecamp has tons and tons and tons of. Can money. we find a way to so redirect should... some of that some <laughs> some Basecamp's revenue over to Notion over the nice folks I, over that, Notion? I think that's kind of Notion's whole bid. Is that their whole Notion? Right. They're like, let's see if we can find a way to redirect some of Basecamp's revenue to us. <laughs> I see. I see. It's becoming clear now. So you know what's funny is I've actually used um, uh, at some point we need, <laughs> need to screen share because I want to show you how we're using Notion right now because yeah. Uh, as, as so uh, previously on fits and starts, I think where we left off, I was getting ready to go start really seriously working on a board game with our friend Walter Somerville. Uh, Walter and I have actually uh, done that, and since I haven't been editing the podcast, we've been like pretty hard at work um, pretty much every weekend and a lot of weeknights. And as you can imagine, in a board game, there's like a lot of moving parts. There's a lot. There are a lot of like complex information. There's a lot of components that need to be kept straight we're testing different things Uh you know for every one thing that is like an active component we've got like five you know in a database somewhere that didn't make it in and we've got uh, a wiki of information about the uh universe that we're building and we've got several games going at once we have thoughts in the middle of the night we don't want to just text each other we got to capture those somewhere where they go point is notion as you can imagine is like is like manna from heaven. It is exactly the tool we need. For Every this exact time it rains, it rains. Man, it's from <laughs> heaven. Scooby Dooby. The thing that I'm just, I'm so red hot on right now is just this whole idea of like prototyping as a lifestyle, man. And like just like the I did I knew hardly anything about design, and I started reading that book that I've referenced on here a few times, designing your life. And it's this whole idea that like you can take design pr- principles and apply them to like almost anything. Obviously, you can des- like apply them to building a software product or building, an, uh, you know, uh, actually designing some kind of like user experience or something like that. But you can also take design principles, which are like have a bias towards action, prototype things, test things, see how they feel, see what the experience is. Uh, that like you could take those principles and apply them to almost anything. And the time that we brought that up in the past was like taking that and sort of applying that to like a career uh, where you just kind of say like, is this something that's interesting to me? Start prototyping and start start actually feeling it around. And the reason that, that was so uh, important for me to realize was I felt like I spent so much time in college just like sitting around thinking about what jobs are probably like rather than actually just right, getting right, out right. And doing anything. Uh, this has been impressed upon me once again. And my the new thing that I am so red hot on right now is this idea of just like, if something is interesting to you, just start like running full speed at it as hard as you possibly can. And either it's not going to work or you're going to learn a bunch really fast. Uh, and I am like, I have become totally convinced that even if you're not working on the right thing, just being in motion and like sort of generating friction is, I like that generating friction. 
I do think you need to be in motion. It's the whole thing that like, I don't know. I remember in second grade, a teacher telling me if you want to write something and you don't know what to do, like literally just get your pen moving, like start moving your pen across the page and start writing nonsense until like clear thoughts start coming to you. I, I, I guess I've sort of intellectually known that to be true for a long time. But especially recently with the board game, it has become so real because uh, Walter and I, for a long time, used to sort of like correspond and write each other these like long Google documents about games that we think we'd like to build. And we've made effectively effectively no progress for months or years, I guess. And recently, now that we live in the same city, we've started to, when we have an idea, just literally get index cards and Sharpies out and write things on games. It's like, we know this isn't going to be the final game. We know this isn't the idea that's going to work, but we need to start pushing index cards around on a table. You know, we actually have, we just have to like be going. We have to be in motion. We have to be talking about something. We can't be talking about nothing. Uh, And man, I'll tell you, it has been like transformative for me. We promised all of our patrons stickers about a year ago. Oh boy. But uh, (laughs) I'm really not good at sending out stickers, but here's what I've done. I just sent the mother load of stickers to John Drexler. He's got them, and I have a feeling- Wait, that's what that was? You've got them. I Uh, thought you were just giving me stickers, and you had already- I assumed you had already sent them out to the- So you're telling me, somebody subscribed to the Patreon 12 months ago. That's correct. They did not receive a sticker. They didn't. A year later, you send me all of the stickers with the purpose of me sending them out. Well, you can also have some. I'm gonna have some feelings about this later on. So yeah, if you're if you're a patron, you might get a sticker depending on whether John's mad at me. <laughs> we're gonna save this one. For, we're gonna say we're gonna save this conversation for the Patreon content this week <laughs> because oh, we need to keep we need to keep this a family show. And currently, we're listed as non-explicit in the <laughs> iTunes category. We're gonna save the we're gonna save the rest of this conversation for the Patreon content. Oh boy! Yeah. Anyway, I uh, hope you like the show. The, I, I'm sometimes cranky about new tools. It's uh, I I get so Walter uh, is really really likes just sort of like having the new tool, looking at what tools are. It's part of his work because he actually does some stuff related to that, and so it makes sense why he gets into that. Every time I he see needs it, it for his work, yeah, it's for his work. It's for his work. And so the, I don't know, sometimes when I hear about some stuff, like when you guys were like, oh yeah, let's try this on Notion. And Walter's like, oh yeah, go do that thing on Airtable. I'm like, oh man, I don't want to go learn a new thing. It's going to be like a four and a half percent improvement on what I'm already doing, you know? Right. Now that, it, but once I kind of see the need for it, like Notion, we, like Google Docs wasn't going to solve the problem that we needed. Uh, and then once I saw, once I understood that, uh, Notion all of a sudden clicked into place. Similarly, I was kind of like, uh, looking at Airtable from a distance, I was like, I don't really know if I understand like why this matters at all. And then f- suddenly there was like a real need for it at work, and uh, I, I I transitioned us over there. And man, Airtable on the other hand, I, for all the things that for all my complaints about uh, Notion, Airtable really is pretty buttoned up. They've they've uh, they got their fifty million dollar round, and now they're <laughs> rolling out features like like there's no tomorrow. Like nobody's business. Yeah. yeah, it's just features on features on features. See, I'm on the opposite end of the Airtable spectrum, which is like there are so few things that I would put in that database that I wouldn't put in just a database that I could. Well, and, th- and you're not, and you'd be like not the target customer, right? Yeah, but I, I want to be the target customer. It is. It is. It's a, it's a really interesting idea. It's like this. Uh, my uh, friend Scott Barstow uh, is uh, was talking about this the other day and was talking about how he about this idea that like there's just. Basically, there's. It would almost be impossible for uh, supply of like kind of software engineering talent to keep up with how fast demand is growing, and so there have to be other solutions. And uh, one of the solutions is like let's get everyone into like a coding boot camp and make sure there's just like a bazillion more uh, uh, software engineers. The other solution is like what about for like little stuff? Let's create these little like modular DIY environments where idiots like me can actually figure stuff out. And that's what Airtable and Notion are, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think over time though, like this is this this gets into sort of a broader unified field theory of like what programming as an industry is. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but like, I think, I think it has been extremely misjudged. Hmm. Um, I think all programmers think that they are way too 
important. Hmm. Um, and they have somehow, I think engineering in general, but programming in specific, uh, there is a class distinction between uh, programmers and other sort of productive laborers, like productive skilled laborers. Hmm. So if you, you know, if you make the front bumper for a Nissan Sentra, you know, you are a certain type of skilled worker who makes like $24 an hour or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, making front bumpers for Nissan Sentras. Uh, and, you know, there's a certain perspective that like, that is like a lower status job uh, than programming uh, where, you know, you make the front bumper for Facebook. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But like at the end of the day, the only reason that, you know, one guy, you know, makes, you know, 55 or $60,000 a year and the other guy makes a hundred or if he lives in San Francisco, a gajillion <laughs> dollars a yeah. year. Start multiplying up from there. Right. Is that there's just like more demand for front bumpers for Facebook than there is for, uh, you know, front bumpers for Nissan Sentras. Yeah. And so because of that, like the compensation is inflated for programmers because like there aren't that many of them. And like until very recently, it was hard to predictably educate programmers, Hmm. right? Like it was hard to like send someone into a college programming course and know they're going to come out like job ready. Right. There wasn't like a certification there would be for something like a medical school. Right. And so the people who were programmers were the people who loved programming and taught themselves how to do it. You know, and like that was about it. Cause like you would learn a lot in like a comp side degree about like, you know, how processors work and stuff, but nothing that was actually applicable at a job. And like, yeah, you'd take some classes in Java and Python and you'd learn some stuff, mm-hmm. but like then it would come down to like, all right, like let's install Babel so that we can use the imports in, you know, ES6 right. instead of having to use the require syntax. And it's like, oh, well, all of this, that was all of this happened in the last like three months. That, that's like, what's what so crazy. The, 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 I mean, the craziest example of this is like how, uh, so uh, for reference, I was working on something for work where I actually needed to write something that I thought was kind of a fairly basic script. And you kind of said like, hey, you could probably do this in JavaScript, go learn this and then go try it. Uh, and me as somebody who's not a programmer and has never deployed any kind of thing that actually works in the world. I went in and like read a whole bunch about it. And by the time you caught up, like there were parts of it that I knew more about than you because it's things that were just announced in the last six months. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's moving, it's Mm -hmm. moving so fast. Like how could a college course even possibly be relevant? Right. And so, and that's kind of the thing, right? Is like the job of a programmer right now, like primarily is to like pay it. So there's like two sides of it. One is to like have a generalized philosophy and understanding of architecture. Oh boy. Right. Which is like, you know, how do I like it's all well and good for one script, but how do I architect like a whole app, you know, when things need to reference things, you know, and there's some of that uh, is sort of overblown tomfoolery and some of it is like nice, you know, it's just nice conventions that keep you sane, Mm. you know. Mm. Um, But then the other side of it is like part of your job is like you got to play with a lot of things you got to stay on top of like what is happening right yeah because if you just like take a break from javascript for a year like it's not cool you know like a year later you're gonna have to take three months and relearn javascript you know and like (laughs) as uh educating programmers becomes more efficient right and as Every every parent sending their kid off to college with high expectations realizes that like being a programmer is a more consistent and reliable way to make a six figure salary than being a lawyer. Yep. Uh, you know all of the kids who went to law sc- and cheaper educationally, right? Because like it's one of the only ways that you can like make a six figure salary without going to some sort of like post collegiate school. Yeah. Right. Like you don't have to go to uh, law school or med school or whatever, right? And so I think there's going to be a huge number of kids, you know, as the colleges start to, like, actually teach the things that are valuable, like, I think there's going to be a huge number of kids coming out of high school even and college 
ready to work, right? Mm-hmm. Which means those entry level jobs at, you know, at startups and, you know, or even larger tech companies, I think the salaries on those are going to go way down, right? And because the salaries on those are going to go way down, you know, the the raise path is going to basically mean that, like, all salaries go down over time. Sure. Um, I, I think that we're look, going to be looking at pretty serious wage deflation in the next, like, 10 or 15 years. The, the only, and this, because the only of assumption that, there is that, that I'm, that I'm, uh, I'm struggling with, I, I totally agree with the, 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 the first part of it, which is that supply is definitely going to go way up. And I, I definitely uh-huh. agree with that. But the, uh, your assumption there is that supply will increase faster than demand increases. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm convinced of that. Fair enough. I mean, let's put it this way. If you were, if your hypothesis was like demand is increasing like exponentially and there's just not enough supply to keep up, mm. like you would expect to see salaries spiking. Right. Right. But, but you're not. Right, you're just seeing salaries grow at like a sort of reasonable rate. Well, you know, one of the interesting side effects of this is also, I think, and this is interestingly, this is something that came up with a conversation with Anil when he was talking about Anil Dash, and when he was talking about how he had come to San Francisco and lived here for a bit, and then realized that he didn't he didn't love it, and so he, he actually ended up going back to New York. One of the things that has has been so interesting to me out here is that uh, the kind of like version of tech that I was interested in was that was kind of the original one we were describing, which is like uh, a lot of like weird engineers who like to build stuff. And I mean, weird in the very good sense, like weird in the way that, you know, all of my friends are weird uh, that they enjoy building things that they uh, are, are excited about it because they're excited about it. They're not excited about it simply because of financial incentive. And one of the things that I've noticed out here since uh, moving here is that that, kind of vision in my head went away pretty quickly because there's certainly still a ton of people like that out here building really awesome stuff. But what is much more common, I think, is that uh, is to meet people who are here because this is a professionalized field. And working for Facebook and Google is now a career path, like you were just describing. Like, it's a really lucrative career path. Uh, and, right. and if you are, you know, uh, if you're uh, capable and amenable to doing, like, any kind of engineering job or financial job or whatever, and you kind of look at your options, it's like, man, being a software engineer is, like, a pretty great option. Yeah. Can I just say, like, I I reference almost nothing as much as I reference <laughs> our conversation with the Neil Dash. It was a like, boy, it was an exciting it, one. It infected my brain in such a good way, and we have to get him back on because he do. was so good. We do. Um, one of the things he said that really sent me down a a rabbit hole is like, you know, programmers are, or tech workers. I think he said are some of the most powerful workers. Uh, in the world Hmm. and they're more needed you know and therefore they have more power which you can see demonstrated by the foosball tables and the unlimited vacation promises you know all of these things right yep like the fact that these companies are willing to spend millions and millions of dollars building these playground offices to keep them entertained is just a testament to how much it is important to these companies to keep their employees Mm -hmm. Generally, generally speaking, uh, public companies don't don't kind of roll, <laughs> roll that out for people unless there's a pretty clear business reason to roll that out for people. Yeah, exactly. Right, like your shareholders are not going to be down with your beanbag, you know, castle, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, unless you can demonstrate, like, hey, look, like all of our programmers are going to Twitter because they have a beanbag castle and we don't. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing, right? Is like programmers are super powerful but because they're super powerful and because of this inherent misconception that they are somehow of a different class of worker than your average blue collar skilled laborer because their salaries are so much higher they think that they are a different kind of worker and that you know they are somehow inherently smart boys and they're blessed (laughs) And they're protected from, you know, the influence of the market. But they're not. You're, you programmer who is listening to this now, like, you're not immune, right? And so it's amazing to me that the, and this is something Anil mentioned, and this is, this has really gotten into my head. It's like, these tech workers are 
so spoiled and so content and so happy and so well paid that they don't feel any of the pressure to leverage their power right and like they're they have all of this power and they could put some stuff on paper that would keep them in a safer position when they're less in demand right and they could like they're one of the few industries that could like leverage their power to like really have a really have a chance at like owning something when they're not needed anymore you know are you but, are, are, uh, are, just for my own clarity are you talking about uh unionization i am 100 percent talking about unionization okay. why are these workers not unionizing the perception is that there's no there's no need right they feel no pressure to unionize right and there's i think another uh speaking of sort of changes in uh the tech world, right? Like, there has been a huge uptick of, like, libertarianism in the tech world, uh, basically since Bitcoin. Um, but, like, in, you know, in the last, I'd say, like, in the last sort of five to ten years, the libertarians per capita of any, like, room of nerds is just spiking. Like, the... It's crazy. Real question. Do you think uh, that the number of uh, libertarians in a given room of nerds has spiked or has the number of people uh, who are outspoken libertarians has spiked? Uh, I don't know. But to me, it, it really feels like, you know, there was a point where, like, the luminaries in tech were you know, Richard Stallman, Linus Torvalds, you know, these sort of uh, lefty, they were a little libertarian, you know, mm. they were a little kind of freaky, but like at the center of their belief system was like, it was about like freeing things from corporate control. Right. Um, and open source, which is, let's be honest, like the complete fundamental base of everything that runs that whole town you live in, mm -hmm. right? It's all running on open source software. It's all people just sharing and stealing code. And like, it's all good and everyone loves it. But like that whole movement happened as a direct reaction to Microsoft and IBM and these sort of big companies locking down their code and trying to own everything, mm. right? And programmers said, well, we're not doing that anymore. Like we're going to write our own kernel for an operating system. You know, we're going to write, you know, and so this sort of like sort of anarchist leftist uh, perspective that, you know, was like the FSF and all of that, like that perspective is sort of dying out and being replaced with this kind of like anarcho-capitalist libertarian perspective that is like, oh, we don't need the government because we're going to invent our own money, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And it's led to this sort of like socially leftist uh economically completely individualist hellscape um <laughs> and it's really it really makes me miserable about tech like the the amount of impact that that a lot of these sort of ideas have ha have been able to have on these people who really do think that the fact that they make $300,000 a year or whatever and someone making bumpers make sixty thousand dollars a year they really do think that is because they're like a better person what uh you know well, so, okay so let's i just just told, told to to wind you back a little bit what is the like talk sure. to me about like what the implications are here so you say that the um the the idea is uh that the tech used to be this beautiful utopia where everyone was uh, uh, uh an anarcho leftist and everything was going great and then i'm not a bunch of that. And then I'm, a not and then a, I'm not making a broad statement and then a bunch I'm of like a bunch of crypto boys walked in and turned every like sprinkled magical libertarian dust on everyone now that everyone is like magically a libertarian what <laughs> are the consequences that you're seeing in real life for that Okay, first of all, you retconned my timeline a little bit, but I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it, right? Uh, but let the record show that that's not how that happened. It's a good thing we're recording this. Open source is a really good example of this, right? Because open source isn't going to go away. It's a question of, like, how is open source going to be, you know? Mm -hmm. And in a given open source project, there's two ways that something can be. 
An open source project can be run by people who like people or people who don't like people. And the open source projects that are run by people who don't like people often are very good projects and often have really like toxic communities mm-hmm. um, where the only thing that matters is code quality. If your code isn't great. And like, you know, Linus Torvalds was famous for this, you know, just eviscerating people for code he didn't like. Mm. Um, but it does seem to me that like the the generalized attitude of like meritocracy in programming yeah. is becoming like unbearable <laughs> you know where it's like y- yeah like the reason your code is good is because or the reason your code is bad is cuz i'm smart and you're not right and this leads to all sorts of like little toxic behaviors like just like closing issues with like a four-word response you know and like when it's clearly something someone spent hours and hours and hours on and you're gonna close it with like you know not not for us or something you know something like that you know and it's like oh man this person clearly spent their whole weekend on that and you just like shut them down because like you're a smart boy and they're not Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. you know um and so there's there's i think there's like kind of a just a general toxicity um and I think a lot of it has come from the fact that, like, these people have all of this money now, you know? And, like, money, to me, like, it, it just really feels like money is validation for a lot of people. So maybe the uh, maybe they always sort of held these these meritocratic beliefs, right? But, like, when eventually they received their nest egg, now they feel that, like, oh, well, I was justified all along, you know, whatever, the thing I'm having a hard, the thing, the part I'm having a hard time with is the like kind of cause and effect that you're drawing. I see, I see the two, I see the two things, but if I'm not, well, I'm not. That's what I'm saying. I'm not really drawing a, a hard cause and effect. What I'm saying is like the broader cultural experience of being a programmer, yeah. is different. Yeah, I, I can, I can imagine that. I'm curious, are there like have there been uh, sort of like broad based, you know, interesting kind of unionization or collectivization efforts uh or collective bargaining agreements of any kind that like in in tech the, not in publishing not in publishing but in content or sorry not in uh programming but in publishing in content there have been so uh i know the vox yep. uh writers yep. unionized i know vice writers unionized uh i believe a couple of other publications unionized i can look it up uh but yeah it's happening Writers, in particular, are unionizing right now, and I'm so happy to see that because uh, those are huge companies that make a ton of money, and those guys don't get paid. You know, guys and guys and yeah, people. Those people mm. don't get paid. What do you mean, those people? But yeah, the people writing these articles like often are freelancers. Often are get you know getting paid like a thousand dollars for this article. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and then it it you know it makes or way less than that, $200 or something for an article. And it makes way more than that for the company, you know, when it gets shared 85,000 times. Um, a lot of times people's compensation is based on results, right? Where like how well your article does determines how how you get paid for it. Yep. Um, and uh, it's not a super healthy working environment, right? And like if you want to be a professional creator of something, like you should get paid. Um, and so, and I think this is the distinction, right? Is like those people do feel an economic pressure, yep. right? Like if you write for Vox, you feel an economic pressure mm-hmm. versus if you, you know, even if you write like the most menial, boring code at Facebook, you're still doing really well. Well, and, you know? and, 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 and even if, uh, I guess aside from the sort of like low wages and, uh, whatever else in the writing world, like one of the other things that seems like must be a consideration is that like, if you work somewhere like Vox, you know that at any given time there are hundreds or maybe thousands of young talented writers who would be willing to work for free in your position. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? Is like job insecurity is the thing that causes people to unionize. And like, it's, there's a really good book that I I would really recommend uh, everyone read um and let me look it up so there's two really good histories of labor that i've read recently um 
One is called uh, From the Folks Who Brought You the Weekend. Um, and it's sort of a shorter, simpler uh, overview of American labor. Um, and I recommend it. It's pretty good. Uh, and it it will definitely get you into the vibe, you know what I'm saying, <laughs> of uh, of labor. The other one I'm looking up on my Audible account right now because uh, it has a more... It has a name that sounds like every book that's a history of a certain topic, and I don't want to get the words wrong, so I'm going to give you the actual author's name. Um, but this is a four to 500-page book, probably, and it's super detailed, and it's a history of labor um, all the way back in America. Um, okay, it's Labor's Story in the United States by Philip Nicholson. Uh, the audiobook is 18 hours and 41 minutes. Um, it's serious and it's like not exciting. It's boring, Hmm. but like there are some really, really interesting segments. Like there are some through lines that they draw in this all the way back to slavery, right? Because like slavery is obviously like the most important labor moment in American history, right? Because it's like, oh, there's like all of this free labor built on exploitation and when slavery is abolished and the free labor goes away like what does what happens to the american labor market right and uh so it's like like this really interesting analysis of labor over time in america but one of the coolest things uh they talk about is um as immigration happens uh in America, you know, as the Irish and the Italians and all of these other groups start to arrive, what that does, and like, it's hilarious because if, like, if you look at the labor movement, it's almost all completely based on like racist job insecurity, hmm. right? Like, it's completely built on like we're Irish and we've always had these jobs, and now like, or like we're Italian and we've always had these jobs, and now the Irish are coming in. I don't remember the order that you know right, 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 when right. people move to America right. in, but it's like. You know, we're, we're whoever, and we've always had these jobs, and now these other immigrants are coming in, you know, to Brooklyn, um, and we're afraid that they're going to take these jobs, so we're going to, you know, cause a, or create a union, and, like, part of the union is going to be, like, no Irish. Yeah, right. You know? (laughs) (laughs) And, like, and this is just, like, this sort of, like, stuff is just, like, this is American labor, right? It's, like, it's, like, racist fear that like an immigrant is going to steal your job is like the reason right and so like my prediction is like the 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 hilariously the time that programmers are going to end up unionizing is like when like offshore programming companies are actually really good right Mm -hmm. like right now a lot of them aren't that good but they're not that far from being good Mm -hmm. you know so you know pretty soon they're going to be good and so now people are people's jobs are going to start getting outsourced, right? And then then the like racist like you know foreigners are stealing my jobs instinct in all Americans is going to pop up. That's a that's a, definitely a thing that's already it's already happening a lot, right? People do huge amounts of contracted work in uh, Eastern Europe and India and other places, right? It's pretty yeah. Really I mean, right a now. lot of a lot of those shops. I mean, there are there are less shops that can guarantee the type of quality that you could get hiring your own American developers at this point. Mm. Because those people have less access to, you know, resources than we do here, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it's just harder to, like, build a good company there than it is here. But it's coming. I mean, if there's, um, if there's one, if there's one lesson from it the is coming, last dude. Uh, few millennia of international economics, it's, it's coming. It's coming. And, like, it's the internet and they can work remotely yeah, right. <laughs> right. with no overhead and they don't demand bouncy castles, right? Like, it's just – it's going to be more economically viable to hire those people. And when that happens, you can bet that all of these, you know, tech libertarians who, who you know, who believe in the meritocracy and all of that are going to very quickly start, you know. <laughs> You're saying they might lose some interest in the meritocracy. <laughs> start bargaining collectively for their job security. They're like, they're like sorry, you know, we, we, meant, we meant meritocracy plus plus. Yeah, meritocracy, but like the type of meritocracy <laughs> where I can still afford my $4,000 a month. Yeah, rent. right. Hold on, I've got some things. To, I got some. I got some uh, obligations. I got to take care of. Yeah, no, dude, this Tesla payment is not cheap, dude. <laughs> <laughs> 
You having a you having a stroke over there? I thought I'd be able to walk quietly away from my microphone and finish making my my tea before you finish that story. <laughs> Instead, I just knocked a dish over. Um, ah, very good. Very please good. continue for like sixty to ninety seconds. Oh, okay, sure. So yeah, anyway, there's uh, there's this yerba mate. I've been drinking it a lot, as you know. I've been a monster boy for quite some time. And while I do occasionally still drink a monster on the weekends, during the week I try not to be a monster man. Um, and I, I drink these uh, yerba mates, and they're, they're pretty good, and they, they get me there. <laughs> and he continued, uh, they are yellow in color, and then they have a little a little ring of color around the top of yeah. the can, t- letting you know what flavor it is. Charlotte and I refer to them as yerbs. Hey, are you going to drink that yerb? Hey, do you mind if I drink that yerb? Etc. Etc. Hey, do you want to stop at the gas station and grab some yerbs on the way? You know, yerbs. Uh, well, where, why don't you go be, be the change you want to see in the world? What's what's holding you back? I am. I am being the change I want to see in the world. Are you starting a union? Uh, I'm not starting a union, but I am. Uh, I am advocating for a lot of things inside of my uh, place of employment. Uh, very recently, uh, Titan had our on-site um and uh we our bosses announced several sort of new initiatives uh one of them was uh salary transparency hmm. uh which we talked about with with matt Anil Dash. we actually talked about it. oh i thought we talked about it with matt no no we didn't talk i about think it. we talked about it with anil and then we t- might have mentioned it to matt yeah okay um but anil was the first person who basically mentioned because we asked him specifically like what can we like as white bro dudes like do to like increase you know general equity in tech companies you know yeah and uh one of his direct answers to us was salary transparency yeah and so that caused me to have several conversations inside of titan about salary transparency and i know that matt and dan were already thinking about salary transparency and already aware of this so I wasn't – I'm not going to, like, claim credit for, like, making them do this. But what it did do was, it like, it caused me to sort of publicly push them for salary transparency. Yeah. Um, and say, like, hey, guys, like, we need to do this and here's why. Um, and so we're not doing full salary transparency. But what we did do is uh, they basically came up with a rubric under which people are paid. Um and there were some people who fell below that rubric and like they adjusted those salaries upwards. Hmm. Um, and they, uh, people are now paid according to very specific things. And it, what it has done is it has caused, it has lessened the advantage to people who are good at negotiating. Right. Which, uh, or it is less than the individual advantage to people who are good at negotiating, which could be bad. Um, but what the sort of result of that is that, like, if you want to negotiate and if you want to use your power of negotiating, which I'm always wanting to do, um, your your best bet is to negotiate uh, basically higher. It, I, I can't really break out the whole spreadsheet because, like, we're not publicly sharing the spreadsheet Mm. but there are some variables in that spreadsheet that you could negotiate on right you could say like i think that you know variable x shouldn't be 1.4 it should be Mm 1.6 and by doing that you know i might get an extra five thousand dollars uh but i'm not going to be the only one who gets that five thousand dollars you know like by that variable changing it affects everyone's salary in a positive way right and so while we're not starting a union because i don't I think unions are very good tools uh, for making people do things that they don't want to do um, and for getting people who won't negotiate with you to negotiate with you. Right. Whereas your, your employees are playing ball. Your employers are playing ball. Yeah. In, yeah. In Titan's, in Titan's situation, like our employers are good people and they are interested in negotiating with us. Right. Um, and like they actively are encouraging this. Right. And so – uh, while, you know, if they decided to stop playing ball, you know, a union would be an interesting idea. Right. Uh, they're definitely playing ball and they're, you know, they're definitely like, you know, down to clown. And so what we're doing is basically just like negotiating, you know, 
in an unofficial capacity, but collectively, right? Right. right. So it's it's a really interesting situation. But yeah, like that Anil interview, like I say, that Anil interview affected me like pretty deeply. Yeah. And Same. has led to like action in my workplace, which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I don't know. What I would love is for Titan to be able to, and it already is in many, many ways. Like other things that were announced at that onsite were, uh, we get a wellness stipend now, which is like an extra amount of money on top of our salary per month that we're just supposed to put towards something that like, uh, helps our wellness, whether mm-hmm. that's a gym membership or yoga classes or psych meds or whatever, you Interesting. know, like it's just extra money. And like, it's just like, use this on something that like benefits your wellness. Uh, Titan now also is doing uh, student loan contributions for employees that have student loans. Um, so they're basically just like, there's a service called peanut butter, which is really cool. Um, and it's basically like similar to the way that a, an employer would contribute to your 401k and your uh, health insurance. Another contribution that the company also makes now is to your student loans. Very cool. Um, yeah, so uh, a lot of, and that was a direct result of Samantha basically finding that this was a thing, finding that other companies were doing this and bringing it up to them in public and saying, this is something that we want. Like, I'm underwater with student loans. Like, a lot of us are. We're all young. Like, help us out. Yeah. And they did it, you know? Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of really sort of positive forward movement and what I would love is for Titan to be not only an example of like the type of like I can't I can't speak for Matt and Dan on this. So I can't say like I want Titan to be an example of like how employers can treat their employees because while I think that that is a goal that they you know that they hold for me as an employee of this company I would love this to be an example of how employees can negotiate with well-meaning employers. Hmm. Right? Um now, what that doesn't do is give you an example of how employees should negotiate with ill-meaning employers, you know? And, like, someone out there should be doing that right now, right, you know? Right, and right. I wish that Netflix employees were unionizing. Right. You know? <laughs> Netflix but, is... Uh, oh, boy. Yeah, they should be unionizing. Uh, Netflix is, like, the most union squashiest company ever. Are, like, are they everything also, they've done. Didn't they, like, for, like, a... For like the first like ten years that they were a company, weren't like all of their developers effectively contractors? Right, exactly. And the reason for that was so that they could just be instantly let go at no cost. Yeah. Right. And so I, I need to fact check yeah. that, but I think that's I think that's more or less. It's correct. true. It's true. Yeah. I've uh, or from whatever Radio Lab story that was. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, there's. I mean, Netflix developers should be unionizing. There are a lot of companies whose developers should be unionizing right now. And they should do it now while they have power instead of 10 years from now when they don't. It's not surprising at all to me here that, to hear that uh, the leadership at Titan is, has taken to this, you know, in a kind of uh, proactive and an affirmative way, not in a, they're you know, awesome. With a, they're awesome. Way, with a lot of resistance. But, you know, one of the things that has been really impressed on me is that I think a few years ago when I hadn't spent a huge amount of time thinking about this stuff, I probably had it in the back of my head, which I think a lot of other people probably have it in the backs of their heads that like these things are, um, that these things would be competitive, not complementary to doing good business, right? Uh, that yeah. that the, that that um, taking care of your employees and offering good benefits and being a good negotiator and working with your people and actually providing uh, you know things like student loans that they actually really need IRL, you know, rather than ping pong tables. That those sorts of things are uh, that those sorts of things are maybe too expensive or you know, uh, and especially growing up in like the south of the Midwest, which are not. Uh, particularly uh, friendly towards labor that in those places it might be seen as sort of like a cushy thing. That's nice to have. And maybe it just drags on your business and makes it so less people can be employed. The reality is like, that's just not empirically true. Like the, the thing that even from the business strategy, let's, let's take the entire question of like doing the right thing out of it. Uh, even from a business strategy standpoint, like you want 
people happy in your organization. You want people to feel secure at your organization. You want people to feel like they're actually bringing them their whole selves to work. You want them to feel like they're actually able to, you know, talk about the things that matter to them while they're at work and keeping people around and retaining them and actually having them feel heard is a massive help to your business. Like everything improves if the people in your organization feel like people in your organization and not contractors. And just what's so interesting to me is there's a ton of examples like that, like treating your customers well, not being a jerk to your competitors, you know, telling the truth, telling the truth to your uh, investors, telling the truth to your shareholders, telling the truth to uh, your customers, communicating, uh, and, you know, and, and having fair prices and not kind of extractive pricing models with your customer. There's a hundred examples of this, but what's been such an interesting thing to me from the kind of like finance side or the sort of investing side is seeing that like over and over and over not doing this is helpful in the short run. Like Titan could save a little bit of money by making life for you guys worse, but ultimately it is actually good for the organization and good for the owners of the organization. If you guys are actually heard and people, and they're actually taking care of you. Uh, I don't know that it sounds like such a no brainer thing, but I don't think I really got that when I first started my career. Yeah, the amount of money that they're giving us for this wellness stipend, right? If that is effective in 20% of the uh, employees, right? In 20% of the employees, if that gives them a 5% boost in productivity, that money was well spent. Yep. You know? And, like, they're not doing it because of productivity. Like, they're doing it because they care about people. But, like, even on paper, like... An extra, you know, over, you know, across all employees, like probably like one or two thousand dollars, you know, (laughs) a month. Right. Like is negligible compared to like what payroll is per month. Right. Right. Or how expensive turnover is. Yeah. Or how expensive turnover is or how expensive like a two month mental breakdown is, (laughs) you know, it's not good for anyone. No one wants or can afford miserable, badly motivated employees. Like, happy, content, healthy, safe, cognitively clear employees do better work 100% of the time. Thank you.